Greetings, ladies and metalgents, and welcome to this latest rendition of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Now, on to the science fiction. A Cabin in the Woods, written by Ack1308. The cabin, set back in the woods, looked like any other. Joe called it the honey trap. It didn't look like much, especially not a trap. But like all traps, it drew in prey and made sure that they couldn't leave before he got to them. To facilitate this, he had installed a highly legal set of spikes halfway down the road. At the flick of a switch, they would spring up and shred the tires of any vehicle attempting to escape under his tender mercies. Only for people leaving, never for people arriving. He liked it when people came to his cabin. To make it even more likely that people came into the trap in the first place, he had notices advertising it for rent in the nearby towns. Once he, um, dealt with the people who came to stay in the quality rustic holiday venue, he made sure to use their credit cards in the next town over, and the next town over after that. Always to buy things in the stores without security cameras. Electronic trails were only as good as the cops following them, and the local cops weren't very smart at all. Unfortunately, it was quiet season now. The demand for out-of-the-way vacation spots was low, except for the occasional businessman trying for a weekender with his secretary. And those were no good at all. Nobody walked away from a six-figure salary for a piece of tail, after all. So he had nothing to quench his, um, desires on. Which meant that he may as well spend the time doing any maintenance that needed to be taken care of. Fix the loose shingles, check the plumbing, and so forth. Drudge work, to be sure, but the honey trap would be less appealing if it got run down. Muttering under his breath, Joe got in the old beat-up truck. Ah, the stories it could tell about the many bodies he transported to unmarked graves over the surrounding hundred square miles or so, and started it up. A trip into town to buy the required materials, then a week or so to deal with whatever problems he could find. As he started off down the road, his thoughts were foul. Whoever stumbled into the honey trap next was going to have quite the time before they died. He'd make sure of that. Fifteen minutes passed since the truck had hurdled off down the dirt track. The cabin sat still and quiet. As evening encroached, the day-warmed timbers began to settle, with an almost imperceptible creaking. Birds and squirrels went about their business in the trees all around. Nobody living in the cabin had ever hunted them, and many put on crumbs or scraps for them. But slowly, the pattern of movement began to change, as animals would react to upcoming earthquakes or a storm. They began to pause in their movements, staring at the cabin, whiskers twitching and feathers flicked nervously. There was an almost subsonic vibration, one that the woodland creatures had never experienced before, which was only to be expected. It had only happened once before on Earth more than 2,000 miles away. But it was unusual, and the animals don't like unusual. It generally precedes something with teeth. 
The vibration began to intensify, accompanied by a sharp, violet light glaring from within the cabin. The glass in the windows was beginning to vibrate. All the animals were still now, staring, trying to make out what the danger could be from, so they'd know which way to run. The shaking began to cause the trees themselves to vibrate, shedding a gentle rain of pine needles. Some of the more nervous animals began to back away. Suddenly, one of the windows in the cabin shattered, breaking the spell. A bird sang out a danger call. Others quickly took it up. In their turn, the squirrels and other small furry animals shuddered in alarm. As birds began to take wing, and the tiny feet leapt from branch to branch, the violet light became positively actinic. A couple of shingles came loose and slithered down the roof, boring off and hitting the ground. And then, from within the cabin, there came a crack, as of lightning striking, accompanied by a strong smell of ozone. This was the last straw for those small animals still lingering. With the rush of feathers, wings darkened in the evening, and other critters swarming over the forest floor. Moments later, Nothing living ventured within the quarter mile of the cabin. Inside the cabin, the story was a little different. They lay with their head fallen, all four of them. Two boys, two girls. Each one had a cusp between childhood and the responsibilities of being an adult. One of the boys was large and well-muscled, his cohort slender and studious. The girls were both pretty, but the blonde obviously took much more care with her appearance, while the brunette had a similarly studious look about her. The smell of ozone was strong in here, but it was slowly dissipating, aided by the gentle breeze coming in through the shattered window pane. For the longest moment, nobody moved, then a larger boy groaned and rolled over to lie on his back. Are we dead? he asked as he inning. I, uh... Don't think so, Brad, replied the studious girl, grunting with the effort of pushing herself to a seated position. Not sure where we are. That damned shaman said that we would need a place of great sacrifice to ground ourselves. This doesn't look like a temple. Holy crap, no it doesn't. The blonde girl was also sitting upright by now, leaning on one hand. She pointed at the window with the other. The last of the afternoon sun was shining through it, casting the room with an orange glow. That's manufactured glass. When was the last time any of you sold the glass like that? Gates right. The skinny boy clambered to his feet and staggered towards the window. Reaching out, he ran his hands over the woodwork and then over the intact panes. Finally, he turned, his eyes adjusting to the dimness, then dashed over to the cupboard, wrenching it open. He reached in and took out a cylindrical object. For a long moment, he squinted at it in the dimming light before he finally recognized it. Guys, we're back. Back? asked the studious girl, who was also on her feet by now. Back where, Scott? Talkanen, Barrister, the damned snake city. He turned to her, holding up a can of baked beans. Earth, home, Miranda. We're home. An hour had passed and Scott had located light switches, which the teens barely recalled from their time away, and flicked every one he could. 
Now the cabin blazed with a light, even as far back in the woods as they seemed to be. It appeared the owner paid his electricity bill. It's all starting to come back to me, Brad said, leaning back in the wicker chair he'd chosen. Memories of Earth, of home, I thought we'd never get back. I always hoped we would, Miranda replied quietly. She sat forward on the sofa, sipping at a glass of water. I'm just glad that stupid magical aura thing stopped us from dying of old age before we did. Cracking arose from the fireplace where Scott was coaxing flame out of kindling and a couple of logs. I knew there had to be a way, he said over his shoulder. After all, Archmage Delanon summoned us there, so there had to be a way to send us back. Which is why, after he died, I kept studying his books. I always thought you just wanted to be the next Archmage. Kate crouched next to him and held out her hands in the growing fire. Oh, that's nice. So, um, do you have any explanation as to why we're wearing the clothes we had on when that pervy jerk abducted us? Well, our clothing did vanish on the way, Scott said seriously, though with a hint of a grin. Kate's opinion of arriving butt naked on a freezing cold flagstone floor in front of a white-bearded guy who had but four times her age had always been acerbic. But he wasn't that pervy. Once he established that we weren't supernatural beings who could help him, he gave us clothing. It only took us a week to convince him that I was more comfortable in trousers. She shot back, yes, I like dresses, not the concoctions they forced their woman to wear. Brad began to laugh quietly, causing the other three to look questioningly at him. What? asked Kate. It is going to be some comment about me in a dress. No, the larger teen said with a bored grin. Just a look on Jelanan's face when the first time he saw you picked up a practice sword and started beating the crap out of the poor guy who had training you. Miranda leaned back on the sofa and took another sip of water. It turned out that we were the supernatural assistants he'd been looking for, just not exactly what he thought we'd be. Stronger, more durable, unaging, healing extra fast, learning extra fast. Those Dramani hassles didn't know what hit them. There was a sense of deep satisfaction in her voice. Or Forrester, or the other places that wanted to invade Tolkien. Scott dusted his hansel and stood up from the fireplace. The Jelanan's dead. The council was running Tolkien intelligently the last I checked on them, and we've managed to accidentally portal our way home. So what do we do with the rest of our lives? Assuming we start aging again now, I mean. Or even if we don't. Kate stood up also. Well, I'm going to figure out which way Brooklyn is, find out what date it is, and go home. And hope like hell I never have to pick up another sword in my life. Her eyes twinkled. In the short run, I noticed a bathroom upstairs. I haven't had a hot shower in about 4,000 years. Belying her previous lackadaisical nature, Miranda came up the sofa like a striking snake. Not if I get there first. Don't you even dare! Laughing, Kate darted for the stairs and Miranda split second behind her. I swear I'll leash the seven strikes of Sarissa on you. Brad watched them go and shook his head fondly. Miranda's braver than me. I wouldn't want to get between Kate and a hot shower. 
Kate's braver than both of us, Scott retorted. Miranda's the one who taught her the seven strikes, remember? He nodded towards the kitchen area. Come on, found something earlier. Yeah, what? Brad got to his feet and followed on, watching as Scott opened a cupboard and pulled out a bottle full of dark amber liquid. Two glasses as well. Booze! He found actual earth booze. Johnny Walker, red label, Scott confirmed. Guaranteed to be a lot smoother than in Talcon on Firewater or Porister Snake Ale. He handed the glasses to Brad and then took a cap off the bottle. Almost ceremoniously, he poured each glass half full and then put the bottle down on the sideboard. Taking one glass from his best friend, he clinked the other in a toast. We're home, buddy. At long last, we're home. Here's to being back home. Brad walked with Scott back to the living room, and they sat on either side of the table. Can't wait to get back to civilization. Scott clinked his glass again. To civilization. Where you don't get sorry bastards trying to kill you off just for craps and giggles. Joe was still a half mile away from the cabin when he saw the light shining through the trees. His eyes narrowed. There wasn't anything else up there that could make a light like that, but, uh... There shouldn't be anyone in the cabin. They said nobody had rented it. A slow smile spread across his face. Someone had fallen into the honey trap without bothering to notify anyone. Nobody knew that they were there. I can take all the time in the world with them. Shifting the truck into low gear, he flicked the lights back to Parker's and erased the back accelerator and let the vehicle find its way over the ruts and potholes. Letting the dim lights show him the road, a few yards at a time. It was better if nobody knew he was coming. They were squatting in his cabin and knew it, so they'd be skittish. Better to come on them by surprise. There was a surprise, all right, but it happened to him. Just as he was easing around the corner, the front wheels encountered an obstacle. An instant later, he realized what it must be, but it was far too late. Even as he stamped on the brakes, the trunk's inertia pushed it onto the vehicle's spikes, puncturing both front tires with a loud piss. The truck jolted to a stop and then stalled out. For a moment, he sat in the cab in a resultant silence, clutching the steering wheel while swearing under his breath. Of course, if there were strangers in his cabin, they would have turned on every light that they could find. And, of course, the spike trap was just another unmarked switch. Fortunately, it wasn't that far to walk to the cabin, even in the dark. The lights made for a great beacon and ensured that they wouldn't see him coming. Getting out of the truck, he reached behind the seat and pulled out a very old friend. A two-foot machete that he kept honed to a razor edge. He and that old machete had been together for a very long time, ever since his first kill. Then he'd been clumsy and rushed. Now he had his crap together, and he knew how it went. Killing was easy, if you knew how. Smiling a particularly lethal smile, Joe started walking up the road, his boots making barely any sound on the pine needles. Oh, that's better. And hey, there's towels up here. Vigorously rubbing her hair dry, Marinda wandered down the stairs. She didn't bear any marks of battle, 
so it was plain that she and Kate had actually come to blows over who had the first shower. She stopped as she saw what was on the table. Kate! she yelled. What? came the reply. They found booze. Tell them to keep some for me. Marinda tilted her head towards Scott and Brad. You heard the lady. Keep some for her. Also, where's my glass? Cupboard. Kitchen. Scott tilted his hand in the appropriate direction. His glass still had a quarter inch in the bottom, while Brad had drained his and gone for seconds. Leaning back in his chair, he sighed. I'm still trying to get my head around it. We've been gone for so long. Barely any time has passed here on Earth. Brad frowned. How do you know? I mean, thousands of years, man. Because this cavern is made of wood, and it uses electricity. Scott rapped on the table with his knuckles and then pointed at the bottle. And I still make Johnny Walker whiskey. But this is my point. We're still us on the outside, but we're on the inside. There is so much more we know. Brad chuckled and shook his head. What use is it here? Did studying Jelanan's books give you anything special insight towards astrophysics? I mean, you still want to finish your degree, right? Well, no, it doesn't, Scott snorted. Most of it was about magic, but I could never make that crap work, even if he could. But you know what we could do? What's that? Marinda wandered back into the kitchen with a glass in hand. Booze me! Obligingly, Brad tilted the bottle, filling a glass. Write a novel series that would blow Tolkien and Martin right out the goddamn water is what? Scott said flatly. We've all lived fifty lifetimes. We've seen three separate empires fall. We contributed to the fall of two of them. Then we established the Talcanon Peace Accord. We did that. We've got the material for the biggest, broadest, and most complete fantasy series anyone on Earth has ever seen. All of us collaborating on this. Miranda's eyes opened wide. Yolanda, you're right, she exclaimed. And if Tolkien thought Alvish was complete, we all know the Tarkadon, the Parister, and the Snake Tongue Trunai. Right down to how the soldiers swear around the campfires. If we play this right, publishers will be literally throwing money at us. Brad blinked. Well, crap. I never even thought of that. I wonder who'll play me in the TV series. Laughter filled the cabin, and the three young friends drank and threw ideas back and forth. Joe heard the laughter as he crept up to the cabin. On one level, it offended him, but on another, it filled him with glee. They had no idea who was coming for them, what was going to happen to them. Just a bunch of stupid teenagers with zero life experience. He'd seen the broken window as he came up the last stretch, and he knew how they'd gotten in. I'll pay for that. Oh, how they will pay for that. Picking his vantage point behind the shrub near the door, he settled down to wait. Someone would come outside, and then he would make his first mark. Unbidden in the darkness, his thumb ran lovingly over the blade of the machete. One swing, one decapitation. That was all it ever took. The heads always lay there so stupidly, blinking at him, not even aware what had happened. Wondering why they couldn't feel there. Well, everything. He hoped it would be a girl. The psychological effect on everyone else would be so much the better. Oh, thanks. Kate accepted the glass of whiskey from Scott and sipped from it. Oh, that's the good stuff. 
We're gonna have to find out who owns this place and pay them back for the alcohol. It's only fair. Well, sure, Brad said easily. Hell, we might rent this place out from them when we start writing. Writing? Kate looked at him, one perfect eyebrow raised. You! Are you sure you didn't swap bodies with Scott on the way back? Miranda giggled, partly due to the whiskey and partly from the comment. No, he's serious. Scott had a great idea that we could collaborate on a fantasy novel series about everything we've seen and done. Kate blinked. For real? We could do that. I mean, uh, us. For the girl who false marched 17 leagues at the head of the force to break the siege around Lassanon, that's a pretty wishy-washy response, Marinda said with a smirk. When was the last time you asked, can I really do that? Instead of, hell yes, I could do that. I mean, really? Yeah, but that was there, and this is here, Kate said. She waved her hand, not holding the alcohol in an attempt to convey her meaning. This is the real world. I'm not an immortal goddess of war here. I still say we can do it, Scott raised his glass to her. The women of the Porista still sing praises to your name, a thousand years after we ended the slave trading. Yeah, but that was easy. Kate took a deep breath. I'm going to have to think about this for a bit. Taking the glass with her, she headed out the front door. One of the girls was coming outside. A blonde, he saw, holding the tumbler of booze. His booze. A spark of anger shot through him. Break his window, drink his booze. They probably even used his towels. They deserved everything that he was going to do to them. For about a minute, she stood with one hand on the porch railing, not six feet from him, looking out into the night. He heard a side, home. Oh, she whispered, at last. Draining the glass, she stepped down the rail and started down the steps. He kept extra still, barely breathing, as she moved closer and closer into his kill zone. Inside, her friends were still chatting about some book or the other. He tuned them out. His total focus had to be on his prey. Strike, take the head, melt into the woods, leave them freaking out. She stepped out alongside him, staring up at the night's side. Orion, she sighed. Thank no. Lunging up out of the cup, Joe swung his machete, already anticipating the bite of metal into the fresh, the crunch of bone. He reached to catch her. The blade was only just starting towards his target when she whirled towards him, faster than anyone he'd ever seen before. One slim hand intercepted his machete arm at the wrist. The other grabbed him by the shoulder. Her knee drove into his stomach. He would have doubled over, but her grip was implacable. The lights of the cabin whirled up and around him, and he landed on his back with a thud and drove the breath out of his lungs. The machete was gone from his hand, sliding to the ground a little distance away. And then she let go and jumped back. Crap! Sorry! She said, I didn't mean to, you just came out of nowhere. Hey, is that a freaking machete? But he was already rolling away, scrambling to his feet, staggering for the darkness, his lungs wheezing for breath. Behind him, he heard a voice rise, Guys, there's someone here. In the semi-darkness, Brad's face held the same implicatable expression that he'd worn in the darker days in the other world. He held the machete with an easy grip, that same hand had wielded everything, from a dagger to a two-handed war axe, 
had old reflexes were hard to let go as he studied it. This isn't used for cutting bush, he said quietly. The guy keeps it clean and he keeps it sharp. I think he came up here to kill us. Marinda nodded, not looking at him. Like Scott, she was keeping an eye at the darkness. Figures, if this guy is a serial killer, it might be a pattern for the place of sacrifice. I wonder how many people died here. Too many, if he's this bold. Scott tilted his head towards Kate. Hey, you okay? Angry is what I am, Kate snapped. I'm back here two hours, have one hot shower, and I'm freaking nearly let down my guard for a stupid garden variety mass murderer. One without any magic to boot. Can't believe I let him get up, much less get away. Okay, Brad said. It looks like we aren't going to be starting the book club quite yet. Let's get inside. We need to secure the building and make sure he hasn't snuck his way back before we start making our plans. In his tone, the voice was of a warrior who had engineered the fall of the Germani 2,000 years ago and an infinite distance away in an impossible direction. Raising the machete, he hurled it. Turning over once, it thunked into the wood of the pine tree at the edge of the light coming from the porch. Then he turned and led the group into the cabin. The door closed behind him. Crouching in the darkness outside the cabin, Joe stared at the machete. That college boy had some throwing arm, he decided. He'd thrown the machete over twenty feet, and it was still buried six inches into the damp pine. But why had he thrown it? To show off, it made no sense. The trouble was, if he tried to get it back, he'd be there for some time just trying to lever it out of the wood. If anyone looked out one of the windows, they'd see him. Maybe the college boy was smarter than he looked. With a sneer, he eased off down the road. They didn't know about the truck, or what he had in it. The way that girl had reacted, it was like she'd trained all her life just for that moment. But all the kung fu bullcrap in the world would not protect her from the high-powered rifle round. When he got to the truck, he opened the door and reached into the rifle rack. He'd never used a scoped Winchester for any previous kills. Mainly because if the stupid local cops visited, he didn't want to have to explain away bullet holes in the walls. But these jerks were different. There was a box of bullets in the glove compartment, and he fumbled for them in the dark. If he had to, he'd fill the damn cabin with bullet holes. The rifle would carry right on through. From the front to back, anyone in the way would just be plain dead. Then he torched the place. Damn it, he muttered. Where are those damned bullets? Looking for these? The cool voice from behind him nearly made him jump out of his boots. Turning, he saw in the dim interior light that the four of them were standing right there, in a semicircle around him. As he watched, the burnet held out a box that he was looking for, then tipped a hand to let the glinting copper cases tinkle to the ground at her feet. What the frick? he gasped. Where did you come from? How did you get those? The young woman sighed. I backtracked you. You leave a trail like a wounded elephant, by the way, she snorted. I should know. You should have kept running, said the slender young man. In an almost dark, he looked sinister, deadly. We might not have caught up with you if you ran faster, far enough. But you tried to kill one of us, the big guy grumbled. We've been friends for a very long time. And we kind of take that sort of thing personally. Plus, said the blonde, 
If a nobody like you had killed me, I'd never would have lived it down. She pointed at the truck. Turn the headlights on. Now. This was going too fast for Joe. What, what for? Suddenly, his machete was one inch from his eye. Lights! Now! Her voice was hard and sharp. A command. He felt himself already moving to obey her before he knew it. Leaning back into the truck was awkward, but he managed it. He fumbling hand sought for where he left his keys in the ignition. If he could turn them, start the truck, and join the transmission into reverse. His scrabbling fingers found nothing. A moment later, the dark-haired girl leaned in through the window above his head. Metal jingle as she waved her hand. Looking for these? Crap! Moving his hand, he found the headlight toggle and pulled it. The yellowish-white light washed over into being in front of the truck. The group stepped back, and the blonde waved the machete out in front. Still unsure about what was happening, he stumbled around the pull of light. What now? The blonde stepped into the light with him and tossed the machete to the ground. Pick that up. See how brave you are against someone who can see you coming. Her lip curled into a sneer. I bet you've never faced one person over their own blade. People like you make me sick. Attacked from ambush. Cowards! A lot of you. A voice in the back of his head told him that picking up the machete was a bad idea. But he pushed it down. He knew now she was a good at martial arts. But he was bigger and stronger than her. And a man with a blade always beats a woman without one. His experience to date had told him that. Crouching quickly, he scooped the weapon up, welcoming the smoothing grip in his hand. Holding it, he felt complete, feeling on top of the situation once more. He eyed the girl. Once he took her down, he would finish the rest of these jerks. Hunting teenagers through the woods was always a thrill. No matter how big they talked, how smart could they be? They'd given him his machete back. I've been away for a while, she said, almost conversationally. There was a, uh, monastery, you might call them. Old woman, Miranda and I trained with them. Or rather, Miranda trained with them. I trained under her. They were called the Sisters of Sarasa. He wondered if she was really just as stupid as she sounded. Lunging forward, he swung the machete. Barely even seeming to move, she swayed back out of the way of the blow. Her hand struck, and a blinding plane flared up his right arm. The machete dropped to the ground. Pick it up, she ordered. She waited until he complied with his left hand. His right wasn't obeying him at all. Then he continued as if the interruption had never happened. They specialized in a particularly vicious method of barehanded combat. The seven strikes of Sarissa. There's more than seven strikes, of course, but those are the important ones. He advanced on her. She gave ground. If she was worried, she didn't show it. A swing of the blade once more evaded by a gentle sway backwards. Then she stepped forwards, through his guard, and straight forefinger drove right into his gut, and he doubled over, gagging. The three strikes are used to disable, she said, almost gently, right next to his ear, three to cause excruciating pain. Stick it up. Stepping away from him, she gave him time to realize that he'd dropped the machete again, and scrabble up with it. Stumbling to his feet, he glared at her, too angry to be scared. Nobody had ever manhandled him like this before. She was going to die. 
Do you know what the last strike does? She asked, turning away from him, taking her eyes off of him. Jumping forward before she could correct a mistake, he swung the machete around in a fast, lethal arc. She spun so swiftly it appeared to be a blur. Her fist, folded oddly, lashed out, and with a dull sense of inevitability, he came to meet it. His last thought before impact was, She played me all the freaking way. Grunch! He found himself lying on his back on the ground. He couldn't breathe or even feel anything from his neck down. The blonde leaned down over her. Her lips parted. Nick kills, she whispered. And then there was nothing. Well, okay then, said Brad and Kate stood up, kicking the tip of the machete. He caused it to flip into the air and caught the blade between two knuckles. Dibs are not being whoever hikes into town in the morning to tell the local cops what happened here. Kate snorted and elbowed him in the rooms. You wish. Who else do you think they're gonna think laid out the serial killer with a lucky punch to the throat? Not little old me, that's for sure. He rolled his eyes. Yeah, that's right. Make me do all the heavy lifting. All thousand years you've been doing it. So why did I ever think that this might change after we got back home? Still bickering, the four friends strolled up the road towards the cabin in the woods. Overhead, the cold star shone down on a dead man. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.